How's everybody doing? It's bright. I forgot that. It's been so long, my eyes adjusted to the darkness. Um, how are we doing? Okay. Break. Oh, this is so great. I love it when you guys don't respond. Um, wonderful. Are we glad to be back at all? Yeah. Oh, yes. All right. So, those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for this thing called Are You Out Performed University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry at New Mexico State University that exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the tough enough to wear pink, and the weak enough to wear blue. Okay, I'm wearing blue right now. Um, For the student who collects back-to-school coupons and tries to color code their textbooks with their notebooks, and the student who wrote... Notes today on a borrowed piece of scrap paper with a Cracker Barrel crayon they found underneath the chair. <laughs> for both of you. Are you exists for those who think Christianity fits the category whatever floats your boat? And for those who think Christianity fits the category deadly serious? In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks so much for coming. Welcome. We hope that RUF gets to know you and you get to know RUF. And by RUF, I mean all those people that raise their hands all the time, all those people out there, you all, who have been here more than once. Uh, you are RUF, believe it or not. And I hope uh, that you feel invited in and welcomed this semester. Uh, we're, we have a lot going on, as you saw, uh, on this thing. So if you want to kind of see what we're tasting, see the goodness of RUF, why don't you turn to the last announcement thing here. Last page of the green folded paper. All right. Uh, do we have a sign-up slash... Uh, oh, it's already going around. I'm so proud. Um, if you sign up before, don't sign up again. This is a good way to get connected if you'd like to sign up and you never have. Uh, also, there's a Facebook group, NMSURUF. If you want to kind of check that out, go, go for it. Uh, it's a great way to keep posted on the events that we do outside of large group, uh, Bible studies, whatever else that's going on. Uh, RUF t-shirts. Okay, so let me tell you a story. We were handing out hot cocoa on Thursday, and I turned quarter of my eye. I saw a three-quarter length sleeve, red and white combination, and I said, are you a t-shirt? No. Someone had made their own t-shirt. Do you know what it said on the front of the t-shirt? I am. I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. So I had a moment where I almost lost my faith in the REF t-shirt. But then I said to myself, so fall 2012. So fall 2012. P.S. for those of you who weren't here, I did I am statements of Jesus. Okay, so the RUF t-shirts are still barely better, and they're still $12. uh, Because I care, and because REF cares. Okay, so small groups... This is a great way to take the next step in RUF involvement, a better way to get to know Jesus, a better way to get to know each other. So come on, jump on in. The water's fine. There's lots of options. They start tomorrow, this Wednesday. And then finally, uh, no, sorry, second to finally, uh, we are doing community service emphasis this semester. Uh, it goes hand-in-hand with what we're going to talk about minor profits. I know we are talking about minor profits. Watch out, world. Uh, but... We're trying to do something pretty regular and smaller scale. Uh, it won't be every week, but it'll be pretty close. So think about kind of giving one or two, couple, one or two sessions of a couple hours on a Saturday 
up to, to do some community service with us. We want to get better at that. We value community service. We want to love not just the NOSU campus, but the greater Las Cruces area and border region. So please come and join us in that. Then finally, the Cosby Sweater Party. Okay? Let me ask you a quick quiz. Ready? Okay? Do you like the following? The 1980s. Sweaters that look like oriental rugs. <laughs> Upwardly mobile African-American families. <laughs> Jello pudding snacks. Fun. If you answered yes to any of the following or above, welcome to the Cosby Sweater Party. You should come this Friday, 7 to 10. There will be rides at 645 outside of Corbett. If you need a ride there, it's off campus. It's at the Moon's house. The address is in your bulletin thing. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, go ahead and do that if you are interested. And if you need more explanation of what the Cosby Sweater Party will entail, I'm more than happy to do the best I can. But I think you saw the graphic, you know, with Cosby. His face just makes you smile. So, I don't know. And we're going to watch the Cosby show. If you haven't watched that, welcome to life's lessons, okay? <laughs> There's a moral to every story, and Bill Cosby tells it. So, okay. So, off the Cosby train, into, into the Bible. Um, this semester, we're studying minor prophets. That's what we're going to study here at Large Group when we look weekly at the scriptures. Uh, the minor prophets are 12 small books in the Bible, hence the name minor. It's not because they're not majorly amazing, but because they're small, they're minor. Okay? Um, they're part of this Bible called the Old Testament, the first half, three-quarters, two-thirds of the, bo- of the book of the Bible. Okay? We're going to stop and study one prophet a week. It's going to be kind of a survey. So we're going to stop and look at Hosea, and we're going to look at a key passage in Hosea, and I'm going to work through that passage and give you a glimpse of it, and I hope that you'll follow up and actually uh, take the next step and read the book yourself. Uh, here's my guess. If you're all familiar with the Bible, you're probably unfamiliar with the Minor Prophets. I mean, when's the last time that you camped out for hours on end in the Minor Prophets, in your quiet time. Or maybe you're not into quiet times. When's the last time your professor referenced the Minor Prophets when referring to religion or the existence of God? My guess? Mostly never. Okay? So it's going to be a little bit of uncharted territory for us, but I think it'll be really good and interesting. So let me give a quick plug about why I think this is worthwhile to do. Because, yes, I'm shameless, and I will do it. Okay. The Minor Prophets are challenging. Okay? The Minor Prophets are challenging. It's impossible, it's not possible to really read the Minor Prophets and to live the same way. It's not possible to really read the Minor Prophets and live the same way. The Minor Prophets are graphic. The Prophets, they, they contain some of the scariest warnings in the Bible, but they also contain some of the most beautiful promises in the Bible at the same time. This, by the way, is why we're calling our series Postcards from the Edge. Uh, that's, a, that's a really clever title, you think, maybe? Well, I did steal it, okay? From a former RUF campus minister named Doug Servin. But he stole it from the actress who played Princess Leia in Star Wars, <laughs> Carrie Fisher, okay? Fisher, not Princess Leia, wrote a book and a movie called Postcards from the Edge. So that's where we're getting that clever title. But I think the title does capture what I mean by sort of extremes of visions of warning and promise, uh, beauty and, uh, f- and, and fear. 
Finally, when the going gets tough, and it may get tough this semester, I want you to remember this, and I want us all to remember this, that the whole Bible, the whole Bible is important to read and serves us well. Okay? The Bible contains words, the whole Bible contains God's words for us. God's words for us. At least that's what millions upon millions of people for thousands of years have thought. So it's at least worth considering right here and right now. And in God's words, I want to tell you what you don't find in order to understand why the minor prophets are so important. Like, if I wrote the Bible, which is already a terrible thing to start a uh, <laughs> sentence with, okay? if I were God or if I wrote the Bible, probably not the best things to lead off of, uh, of an idea. Okay, So the Bible would look, I think if we wrote the Bible, it would look like how to find Mr. and Mrs. Wright. There's no book on that. Okay, Or if we wrote the Bible, it would contain what to do with your major. How to answer people at Christmas parties who are older than you about your major. Okay? There's no book on that. Okay? Or even how do we win and influence people? How do we win friends and influence people? No book on that in the Bible. Okay? Instead, the God gives us the minor prophets, these edgy postcards. Why? That's what we get to explore this semester. Cliffhanger. Okay, so super exciting. So let's start the study of the minor prophets by looking at a minor prophet, Jonah, and his prophecy contained in the book of Jonah in chapter 3. We're moving there. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, is a blueprint about how prophets and prophecy work. Hence the title for tonight's message. So let's look at the Bible and hear what the minor prophets have to say for themselves, right? So, if you haven't turned there already, on your bulletin, turn to the back, or the inside right hand. You'll have some, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you're into thumbing through the Bible, which I'm proud of you for in this one, okay, it's going to be after Psalms, after Isaiah, and right after Obadiah. Okay? And it's going to be behind uh, the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and immediately before Micah. Okay? So, that's kind of, if you could just kind of approach it from either side, you'll win. Okay, that's where Jonah is. Okay, so inside right of your Greek sheet, I'm reading the English version, English Standard Version translation. So could you stand for the reading of Scripture? Uh, we're going to look at Jonah 3, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way... God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Friends, these are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey. 
even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we thank you for your words tonight. Uh, We thank you for this part of the Bible that is not well-worn. We thank you for the ways that you're going to teach us uh, tonight about who you are, about your gospel, about your son Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would unchain the melody of the gospel in our hearts and help us to sing praise to you. Help us to sing encouragement to each other. Help us, Father, to change in a beautiful way, in a way that glorifies and honors you. I pray, Father, that you would move our lips, move our hands, move our hearts, and move our, move our feet and our minds. Pray, Father, that you would change us and not leave us the same. Do us this mercy. Whether we know it or not, we are gasping for the living water of your word. And I pray that you would change us through it and that you would quench our thirst tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So do we feel uncomfortable yet? The word of the Lord has crossed multiple oceans, foreign desolate lands, and come to this guy Jonah, this man Jonah, and it gives him one sentence to say. One sentence of doom and gloom. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This passage is typical of minor prophets. Maybe a little bit more brief than other minor prophets, but still typical. And after reading it, most of us should be and are uncomfortable. Okay? Perhaps this feeling is what makes us avoid reading that part of the Bible, the minor prophets, to begin with. Maybe it's that feeling that causes us to avoid reading the Bible in general. But why is this passage and other passages in the Minor Prophets like it? Why is Jonah chapter 3 so very uncomfortable for us? I think the real answer might surprise us. The Minor Prophets are primarily uncomfortable because of our lowered expectations. Our lowered expectations are why this feels uncomfortable. Let me explain this by describing a comedy skit that's available on YouTube from the 1990s. Not quite the 80s in Cosby. But the 1990s, okay? Uh, this is a skit that was on Saturday Night Live and then Mad TV. I don't know if you remember that at all. Maybe I'm just old. Um, it's, it was a fake commercial for a fake dating service called Lower Expectations. Okay? <laughs> Lower Expectations. I just want to capture this. It's really hard to do. I sh- you guys should see it. But um, I can't advocate a particular video or I might get fired. But it's still interesting. Um, so there's... Uh, there's this opening scene, okay? A couple's walking hand in hand, and then the theme song puts sort of giving up in a jingle. <laughs> I mean, it sort of goes lowered expect, and then it goes tations. Like, just totally, you're, you've just totally given up. Your eyes have gone from the prize to your feet, and you've kind of crawled into the fetal position. That's kind of what the jingle kind of captures. And then the couple holding hands turns, and you see them facing a drainage ditch. Beautiful. <laughs> Lord expectations. Okay. So then the, then it kind of pans. The, the fake commercial goes to a woman who's sort of obviously sort of the sales rep. And it kind of zooms in on her. The camera does. And she starts to give a spiel about why Lord expectations is for you. And so she kind of is addressing this to the audience. And let me kind of read some of this. Are you having trouble meeting your ideal mate? How about any mate? Do you fear that you could conceivably be the last man or last woman on the planet not getting any dates? 
And yet you still wish to land that prince or princess of your dreams. My favorite line. Well, wake up, sleeping ugly. (laughs) Brutal. Uh, Because your only hope is lowered expectations. Our video library allows you to choose from thousands of chronically rejected singles. Just as hard up and pathetic as you are. So good luck. You'll need it. Okay, so that's the intro. And then it pans to a video. Okay, a series of three different videos. I'm just going to choose three of them. There's multiple. Okay, one of them has a picture, you know, kind of says, like, the person's name, Gina, number 385 or something, right? And she faces the camera and explains what she wants in an ideal mate. And Gina, in this particular instance, one woman is talking about her ideal partner. And between every sentence, she unintentionally shouts the word murder. Let me give you another example. Another man spends the entire video trying to smash his earlobe into his ear, and he finally succeeds, and he goes, How do you like me now, ladies? (laughs) Awesome. And then the third and final one, there's a woman who looks into the camera and sincerely describes who she's looking for. Ready? A man. A man who looks like a man. Clearly these people in these videos and their potential matches, all fictional and fake, are setting a very imperfect bar, a very lowered expectation. Okay? But let me peek behind the humor there and maybe the discomfort in this room over dating in general. Okay? Oh, am I in that video? Oh. <laughs> well, am I sleeping ugly? Do I need to wake up? Um, look. Let's, let's talk about, let's lift that back for a second. Let's get over ourselves, okay? The sketch lowered expectations is an insightful way to, the way that we look at most of the world, okay? Look, I could quote sociological study after sociological study. Um, I, could, I could tell you, even just by this video, that the vast majority of Americans, in particular college-aged Americans, have gone from dreamy idealist to grim realist. Okay? There has been a, sh- a subtle but mark- marked shift between the 1960s and 2010s. Okay? And the shift has been idealism to realism. Okay? Not all bad, but very different. Okay? Think about politics for a second. Politics feel like, feels like the choice between two evils. Okay? Think about your major. You're thinking about what will actually pay back your student debts, your student loans. Not even necessarily what you want to do. Okay? Let's think about making a difference. I think John Mayer puts it best when he says, we're waiting on the world to change. That's when we'll make a difference, when the world changes first. Okay, there's sort of a sense in which expectations are lowered, and we're just becoming grim realists. And the reason that joke works, the reason that this comedy skit went on and on in two different skit comedy TV shows, is because this is the one area of life that we don't, we don't have lowered expectations in. That's why it's funny. Okay? Think about it. None of us, none of us are struggling to be picky. None of us don't have incredibly high expectations. We all have incredibly high expectations when it comes to who we'll date and who's going to be our future spouse. It's one of the few areas where we don't settle. Okay? But think about, by contrast, the many other areas that we do settle. And there we have our discomfort. Because we don't have to look at fake dating skits and we don't have to look at sociological studies to reveal our lowered expectations. All we have to do is look at the minor prophets. All we have to do is look at Jonah, chapter 3. Because when we hear him say, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, we frown, we flinch, 
And we get uncomfortable when God says he wants to destroy a whole city. Meanwhile, this city Nineveh and these people, Assyria, the Assyrians, skin and burn alive people. They hang them up, squirming on sharp sticks through their torsos. Okay? They cut people's hands and, and feet and toes and thumbs off for trophies. And this includes young children. Are the only people that deserve consequences Nazis? Or maybe the guy that shot 20 elementary school kids in Connecticut? Are those the only people that deserve consequences? Are we really that numb about the world and the way the world works and how hard it is? A Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel, my Jewish Frederick Buechner, suggests we are. Okay? He suggests we are that numb, and he recommends the perfect antidote to this numbness, to our shrugging realism. The minor prophets. Listen to the way he describes the minor prophets versus us. To us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploiting the poor, is slight. To the prophets, it's a disaster. To us, injustice is injury to the welfare of people. To the prophets, injustice is a death blow to existence. To us, it's an episode. To them, it's a catastrophe, a threat to the world. The passage, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, teaches us that God, the universe, our hearts, our lives are greater and more important than we think they are. Let me put this thought in a sentence. In Jonah 3, let alone the minor prophets, God asks us to reconsider how the prophets, how prophecy in our very lives work. Simply put, God, the prophets, prophecy, are far more important than we think they are. And that's a hard message to hear, but this strange passage in Jonah uh, shouts it loud and clear. It shouts it in two different ways. It shows us our lowered expectations in two different ways. First, prophets are different than we think. In verses 1 through 3, we see this. They are, prophets are less like psychic Anna and more like God's lawyers. Okay? Second, prophecy is different than we think. Verses 4 through 10. They are less like Weather Channel forecasts about history, and they are more like heartfelt pleas to come to Jesus. Okay? So let's begin with verses 1 through 3 and what prophets, how prophets work. And then we'll look at prophecy verses 4 through 10. Okay, so turn there in your Bible on your sheet if you're not there already. Okay? Let me briefly set the stage for how prophets work. Or for this, book, this part of the book of Jonah as well. Okay, so for those of you not familiar with the book of Jonah, Jonah has, uh, God has delivered a message to Jonah to say, Hey, Jonah, why don't you go tell the Ninevites uh, a, a story, a message? And Jonah has not just refused God, but he has run the other direction. As fast and as far as he could run. And God sent a storm, and he sends a big fish, and he brings Jonah right back to where he began. And this is where verses 1 and 2 pick up the story. Let me read them again. Then the word of God came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it the message that I tell you. From these verses, we see what a prophet is. Okay? In the words of one theologian, the prophets are God's mouthpieces. They're God's mouthpieces. Okay? I'm not talking about mouth guards. Okay? We're talking about the words of God. 
The word of the Lord comes to these prophets, like Jonah, and it gives them words to speak. But what does this process look like, right? Is this sort of just like the word has legs and comes into someone's mouth? That's kind of weird. No, I think that there's a helpful description of this process that Wendy read earlier from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It goes like this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So prophecy was not produced by the will of men, but prophecy is from God. Okay? And men are carried along in the Holy Spirit as they prophesy or prophesy. Okay? There's still a lot of mystery in this in this whole passage. I don't think that explains everything about how prophecy works, okay? Or how how the word of the Lord becomes how God's words become human words and how they're still simultaneously God's words. But I want to give you an analogy that I think does help. It works a lot like Jesus. God became man. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that as an analogy for how prophecy works. The words of God become human, but they're still divine. Okay? Again, we can think about that forever. Maybe that was just like a tongue twister, brain twister, and we're all just sort of hidden enlightenment. Okay, so... But look at the kind of man that the Holy Spirit guides a prophet to, to be. He's someone who's dramatically applying God's truth, his laws to a specific people. Okay, think about Jonah. In the words of a former professor of mine, prophets are God's lawyers. And maybe that's why we don't read the prophets either, because we don't like lawyers. Okay? But I think, think about it differently. Don't think about the people who are suing you, or want to sue you. Okay, think about, my dad's a lawyer, I feel like I can make these jokes, isn't that fair? Okay, think about the fact that prophets take God's teachings, and they passionately argue for them. They prosecute and defend God's people on behalf of God. Okay? They are God's instruments for change. And that's why they're so important to pay attention to. And that's why they're so important to read. Because they're taking very general, abstract things and making them very specific and very colorful and very dramatic. And very and helpful for us. Think about Jonah again, okay, for a second. Why do you think he ran away from God? Was it because he didn't want to predict the future for Nineveh? Did he run away because he didn't want to be God's meteorologist? No. Jonah ran away because he didn't want Nineveh to know God's laws. He didn't want Nineveh to know that they were doing evil and to be able to turn from it. Because he hated Nineveh. Because Nineveh had taken the body parts of his friends and family and stuck them on pointy sticks. Jonah didn't want to give the Assyrians a chance to turn from their unbelief in God and turn to a belief in God. Jonah wanted Nineveh to fall in God-ordained disaster. And that's why he ran away. So look, verses 1 through 3, just to summarize, they tell us what, I think it's always helpful to tell us what they're not saying. Okay? Prophets are not mystical gypsies. Okay? I think when we think about prophets, we think of someone like with giant hoop earrings and, and sort of like uh, jangly bracelets, and they drive around in caravans on the ancient Near East. That's not what he's describing. Okay? Therefore, biblical prophecy does not look like dark magic. It doesn't look like ghost stories we tell in the dark around campfires. Okay, that's not what this genre is. Uh, you know, this genre is not Ouija boards. It's not light as a feather, stiff as a board, slumber party experiences. That's not what the Old Testament is about. 
The true biblical prophets didn't have billboards, they don't have hotlines, they don't charge by the minute using palm reading charts or crystal balls. In other words, they weren't PayPal friendly like Psychic Anna. I heard she just went out of business. I'm sorry to hear that. Sort of. Um, at least she took on her billboards. I don't know. So they, maybe she's working on the sly. I'll have to ask Monica's mom. Anyway, so <laughs> she knows her. Okay, so they worked and spoke. The prophets worked and spoke for God alone. Okay, they were God's mouthpieces. They took God's general teachings and applied them to our specific pe- persons historical and present, and also our particular situations to NMSU, okay, and also ancient Israel. So as we prepare this semester with minor prophets, my hope is that we faithfully open our lives up to God's words. Not as a fortune cookie saying, okay, but as teachings. Teachings that drive us to Jesus for forgiveness of our failures, and they drive us to Jesus for the strength to do good. To finish our good intentions. That's what the prophets are moving us toward. That's what lawyering looks like in the Bible. So if prophets are different than what we think, verses 1 through 3, prophecy's got to be different than what we think as well, in verses 4 through 10. If minor prophets like Jonah are not like psychic Anna, their prophecies cannot merely be fortune-telling. And this is going to be the hardest part for most of you. Some of, most of you don't have a view of Gypsy Jonah, Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to say Gypsy Jonah. But most of you don't have that view. Most of you have a view of fortune-telling being prophecy. Okay, But biblical prophecy cannot just be foretelling. Just try this along with me. Just try this experiment for a second, okay? okay. Look up here for a second. Okay. Now look down at verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Look at that. Now think about that as a prophecy. Now go to verse 10. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to the Ninevites, and he did not do it. Okay? If all prophecy is merely future forecasts of history, then God lied in verse 4. He lied. But God is not a liar. Instead, he uses Jonah to give the Ninevites the chance to repent. And they repent, and God turns away sin's consequences, at least for a little while, and this is the normal way prophecy works. Let me give you a proof text that will help. Okay? Listen to the way that the Bible expands and expounds normal prophecy. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. Don't turn there, it's no big deal. God through Jeremiah says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that it will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from evil, okay? so he's saying if I destroy that nation, but then they repent... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build or plant that kingdom, if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Okay, so what is God saying here about prophecy in general? He's saying any prophecy of destruction can be reversed by repentance. Okay? Any prophecy that says you're going down, if you believe God and take Him at His word and you turn from your evil, you're actually going up. And this is true for Nineveh in our passage. Okay? But notice God also says that any, pros- prophecy, <laughs> any prophecy of prosperity, like you're going to live between, in the crevice between two rainbows, good, okay? Double rainbow, amazing. 
Okay, you're walking on clouds. Awesome. Okay, that prosperity prophecy can be reversed by doing evil in the sight of God. Okay? What does that mean? If a prophecy sounds like a future done deal, it's not. It's usually conditional. That means it depends on a response to it. Therefore, prophecy is not just foretelling future events. Prophecy is not just about Jesus' life or the end of the world. Okay? As we know it. I feel fine. But the prophecy is not just about foretelling, it's also about forthtelling. It's delivering us to repentance and to goodness and to God. Does that make sense? Are we tracking with that? Okay. Prophecy is also different and more important, this is my last point, than we think it is because prophecy points to Jesus. I don't, I, this is maybe not obvious to you, some of this maybe is obvious to you, but the entire Bible, including the minor prophets, points to Jesus. And maybe you're like, Sid, that is ridiculous. Where are you getting that nonsense? And I would say, well, I'm getting it from Jesus. Okay, in Luke 24, listen to the way that Jesus puts it. I love this. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Oh, gentle, meek, and mild Jesus. Okay, all these, pro- all that the prophets have spoken. So you're foolish and slow to believe the, pro- the prophets, the minor prophets included, have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? With everything written about me, Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's in Luke 24. Okay? So what is Jesus saying there? Let me quote a friend of mine, Jason Bobo. Okay? He puts things better than most, most of the time than I do. He says this, look for the gospel and the prophets. This is your application. Look for the gospel and the prophets. If we simply read these books as historical documents, we are missing their greatest intent. If we don't read Jonah or any other minor prophet looking for Christ, we are not reading the Bible like Jesus Christ read the Bible. This is all about him. The whole thing is about him. There are some other characters that we'll study over the course of the semester, but ultimately the entire book of the Bible, the entire book of every prophet, points to Jesus. Okay. This doesn't mean that we look for leprechaun Jesus. Do you know what leprechaun Jesus is? Oh, look, there he is, wee little Jesus, hiding behind the repenting horses in verse 8. Oh, there he is, little Jesus, I see you. Okay? It doesn't mean that the Bible becomes a frustrating version of Where's Waldo. Okay? There he is, I think. Whoa, is that guy, he's the same beard and sandals. Isn't that Jesus? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Okay, it doesn't look like that. Instead, we're looking for the gospel. We look for Jesus in the way that God's righteous judgment melts into surprising mercy. Okay, we're looking for the ways that judgment melts into surprising mercy. In Jonah 3, when the king of Nineveh repents, he, tells, he says this to his whole kingdom. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fiercest anger so that we may not perish. That's in verse 9. Look at this. Listen to this. And Jesus Christ, who knows that question, turns into we know. We know that Jesus causes God to turn away from his anger. How? Christ has promised that. Think about Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 
there's now no condemnation, no consequences for all of our sins, no punishment for all of our wrongdoing in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ was born, lived, and died on a cross. His life for the lives of those who believe in him. So that God could save us from God. So that God could save us from God. And that's what the whole minor prophets are about. God saving us from God through Jesus Christ. Saving us from the Father's wrath. And this truth makes our discomfort with the minor prophets turn into an overwhelming comfort. Because of Jesus, the most scary threats, the most scary warnings turn into the most beautiful promises. Because of Jesus, our numbed, shrugging, lowered expectations have a reason to rise and come alive. The minor prophet's raging and holy discontent transformed into the final prophet Jesus's calming and holier-than-ever content. In other words, we get a view of the way things finally and fully will be. The way they should be. A wondrous and just universe. Let me end with a comment and a quote, and then I really am done. Okay? Look, I'm a reader. I'm not embarrassed by that. The Bible's a book, okay? So I'm a reader, okay? And I read and I read a lot, and I read long books and short books and whatever else, but it took me forever, like years, to read The Lord of the Rings. That's, I almost got kicked out of the ministry for it. I almost, they almost disowned me as a Christian. I'm kidding, okay? Everyone quotes Lord of the Rings every sermon. Uh, watch out. But seriously, you know why it took me so long to read The Lord of the Rings? You ready? The Lord of the Rings, the books are nothing like the movies. Okay? Have you, have you compared and contrasted this recently? Okay? Look, J.R.R. Tolkien is not that interested in battle scenes. It's like a lab report. I mean, when you read the battle scenes, it's like passive voice, like, and then they did this, yada yada. <laughs> You're like, whoa, 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 didn't someone swing something and kill something? Can I get the blow-by-blow account? No. Okay? No romance, really? All of a sudden the main characters are in love and married forever, and you're like, what, what, wait, <laughs> where did that happen? Okay? And then, there's no cliffhanger plot, really. He had a beautiful plot, but he just decides to not really milk it, right? The chapter's end, and you're like, I'm not sure I want to read another chapter. <laughs> okay? Look, you don't believe me, that's fine, okay? Think about The Return of the King, okay? If I wrote The Return of the King, another dangerous statement, if I wrote The Return of the King, okay, think about it. It, it ends a hundred pages earlier than it should. <laughs> when is the actual ring destroyed? A hundred pages before the freaking book ends. Okay? Can you believe that? What is he doing? <laughs> Tolkien gives us 100 pages of painstaking, gorgeous description of a just, wondrous universe the way it should be. Just listen to the way he describes the Shire Restore. This is where the hobbits live, okay? If you're not into that, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> altogether, 1420, that's Middle Earth reckoning. I don't know what that means. I don't speak Elvish. Okay. Although, altogether, 1420 in the Shire was a marvelous year. Not only was there wonderful sunshine and delicious rain, 
in due times and perfect measure, but there seemed to be something more, an air of richness and growth, a gleam of beauty beyond all mortal summers that flicker and pass upon Middle Earth. All the children born or begotten that year, and there were many, were fair to see and strong, and most of them had rich golden hair, which was unusual among hobbits. And no one was, oh, and the fruit was plentiful, and young hobbits were nearly bathed, it was so plentiful, in strawberries and cream. Think about that image for a second. Okay, crazy. And no one was ill, and everyone was pleased except those who had to mow the grass. Great last line. Okay. Are descriptions like this boring? Are they boring? Perhaps we suffer from lowered expectations on the other end of things. Not just about the evil in this world, but also about the good that is and shall ever forever be. A good that's different, a good that's greater, a good that's more important than we ever dared imagine. What would it look like for us to get a bit idealistic and start longing for heaven to come to earth? To pray the prayers of scripture that says, come Lord Jesus, come. What would that look like? Who knows? We know. Jesus Christ will come again and he will make all things new. That's the promise. That's the beauty. That's the power. That's Christ melting judgment with his promises of deliverance. That is the minor prophets, in a nutshell, that we're going to unpack for the rest of the semester. And I dare you, I dare me, to shrug off our shrugging, to chase away our boredom, and to capture a vision of the world instead of black and white and full-color reality. Because that's what the minor prophets are inviting us into. It's not for the faint of heart. But it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's just, and it's true. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I thank you for the ways that you challenge us. Um, I realize that this passage is challenging. I realize that this sermon is challenging. I realize that um, I'm challenged by the Lord of the Rings, let alone your Bible. Um, There's lots of places to start to work with us. And I pray that instead of shrugging our shoulders and moving on to the next thing and thinking this was boring, I pray that instead you would challenge our hearts, you'd stir up our affections, that you would move us to long for something greater than what we have. To grieve over things that happen every day in our schools, but also, Father, to long to be bathed in strawberries and cream, whatever that even means. I pray, Father, for that kind of vision, I pray that we would not dismiss the minor prophets, but that we would embrace them, and that we'd, stand under, we'd sit under your word and not stand over it. We ask these things and pray that you'd help us to take it into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.